Hello, listeners. Before we get started, we want to thank our new sponsor, Answer One, for its support of this show. Their virtual reception service is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week to handle inbound calls, schedule appointments, and even respond to emails. Check them out at answerone.com forward slash podcast for a special offer. And now, on to the show. Welcome to the AVA Journal Legal Rebels podcast where we talk to men and women who are remaking the legal profession, changing the way the law is practiced, and setting standards that will guide us into the future. Welcome to Legal Rebels Trailblazers. I'm Jason Taché, legal affairs writer at the ABA Journal. And today, Richard Granite is our guest. For those of you who haven't run into him during his prolific career, a little background. He's been building legal service delivery systems for over 35 years. He's also been the driving force behind numerous legal tech organizations like MyLawyer.com, Smart Legal Forms, Direct Law, and even the Maryland People's Law Library, which, as a side note, I wrote for earlier in my career. Now, he's just recently announced a new artificial intelligence venture called Introspection. It's great to have you with us today, Richard. Good to be here. So I wanted to start off talking about kind of the moment we're in in regards to legal technology. Very much it's being covered by us at the journal, as well as I think in the conversation in the legal community as the current zeitgeist of the profession. But you've been creating these tools and thinking about legal technology since the early 80s. For context, this is pre-internet, it's pre-Windows. So I'm curious, what drew you down this path at that time? Yeah, that's an interesting question. At the time, I was running what was known as, it was the first paralegal training institution in the United States. And at that time, we were training paralegals to move a lot of papers. So in litigation support, we trained them to take all the documents in a case and put them in alphabetical order, subject order, date order, and then when the lawyers needed those documents, they would run around, scramble between all those filing cases and pull those documents. So it occurred to me, when the early days of the PC, when we had those first databases like DBase2 and the first spreadsheets, that a lot of the information that's in law firms, you can think of a law firm as multiple databases of information. And it occurred to me that the PC was a very powerful tool for organizing that information. And I could see, even in those days, that technology would be transformative. And what we actually started doing, even in those early days, was automating legal tasks that were then being done by paralegals, like in litigation support, using spreadsheets to do tax returns. And, you know, it kind of just grew from there. We were very early in the sense that we actually produced and published one of the first automated litigation support programs that was actually approved by the ABA around 1983-1984. And, you know, it was really from that point on that I could really see the transformative impact of information technology on legal practice of legal services. A little bit later, I read Richard Susskind's groundbreaking work that was being done in England and another book that was came out by Ethan Cash called The Electronic Transformation of Law, which is way back in 1983. And those two visionaries actually predicted much of what we see today. So it's been a, a journey. This particular journey for me starts around 1980, 1981, when I'm really starting the first paralegal training institution and transforming that work from paperwork to electronic work. And so what did the community look like then? You named a couple of the 
major names at the time, but who were your early boosters? Who was eye to eye with you in regards to what you thought the future would be? There weren't many. Uh, we had a financial backer. We had a venture capital firm that was early on the curve. There were people in the community. Some people have heard of Alan Sugarman, who created a company called Hyperlaw, which eventually broke West Publishing copyright protection over cases. And they contracted with Alan to run a nationwide series of courses for lawyers on computer literacy on the law. This is about, again, 1982, 1983. And these were live seminars about the DOS operating system and all. And he was quite brilliant. We played to a full house in multiple cities. We had hundreds of early adopter lawyers who were interested in this new development of the PC. Everything from word processing to database to spreadsheets. We actually developed the first course on computer literacy for law. It's quite a uh, experience at the time. And it was new and it was groundbreaking. And it was after that tech show, Legal Tech, got started. And we started displaying our software in Legal Tech. At the time, there was only 50 vendors at Legal Tech in New York. It was very early stage. It was about 1983-84. So something I'm curious about is the retrospect that you possess. You've been working in this area for... 35 plus years now. And I'm curious, what were some of your early predictions that didn't pan out? Almost in every instance, uh, we were really ahead of the curve. I always underestimated how long it would take for adoption to take place. Even in the most recent efforts to get the idea of a virtual law firm established beginning around 2009, those ideas of operating in the cloud, uh, we were very early on that with companies like Clio and Rocket Matter. It's taken a good uh, seven or eight years for those ideas to mainstream. So most of the ideas end up mainstreaming, but I'm always off by about five to ten years is the only way to describe it, because the, the rate of change is always much slower than one actually expects. In something like the litigation support industry, really took off automated litigation support about five years after we started it. So if you're very early on the curve, it's very painful because you usually end up losing money because you don't get enough traction during its first stages. So a lesson for many of these startups that we see now is that you have to have some capital to let you get through the runway and you have to have persistence. The legal profession in particular has always been slow to adopt. It just takes time. I mean, it, it, it doesn't happen overnight. Even today, where we see the adoption rate in technology moving faster, it's still uh, slower than one would expect. My own view, for example, is that the legal profession is a service industry compared to uh, retail and the travel industry and uh, everything else that you see that's on the Internet has been slower to adapt to these kinds of online technologies. Every law firm has a website today. Most have a website. But that doesn't mean that they've incorporated the idea of technology as a core uh, foundation for the delivery of legal services. We work, for example, in automated document production using tools which generate uh, routine documents very quickly from an online questionnaire. That idea has been around for a long time. We're now just seeing that idea begin to mainstream, where routine documents are generated automatically from a questionnaire, where the client inserts data and information, and from that, the document's instantly created, ready for the lawyer's review and further revision. So one of the things that you mentioned in there is that for those that are early adopters in this space, it can be a, a painful experience. And you mentioned capital 
injection being one of the things that helped you go forward. But besides the financial aspect, what kept you going? From what you shared with me before the interview, it sounds like some of the environments you found yourself in weren't terribly supportive of your work. Yeah, I think there are two points there. Any kind of innovation is going to hit resistance. If you're not hitting resistance, you're really not innovating. So for me, that just goes with the territory. The thing that's always been driving me has been a longer-term career interest and access to justice. Previous to this, I helped start the National Legal Services Program in the 60s, and I helped start one of the first clinical law schools, Antioch Law School. And my whole interest has been, an overriding interest has been access to justice for consumers, access to the legal system. So for me, that's been a driver. And my interest in technology has been that this is a method that enables people to solve their legal problems, either at low cost, maybe without lawyers, or with lawyers uh, offering cheaper and less expensive legal services. So for me, it's not been technology as much been A to J and access to justice. That's been really the driving theme for my whole career. And it starts for me actually all the way back in law school. And my first job as counsel in the Office of Economic Opportunity, which was then the Johnson Poverty Program, as part of the initial team that started the Legal Services Corporation. And today, the Legal Services Corporation is actually a leader in the use of information technology for access to justice purposes. In fact, this Thursday, uh, later this week, I'm going to participate in their annual conference called Legal Technology Innovation that's happening. So the very interesting things that are happening still in the legal services sector, which I consider to be somewhat more advanced than uh, solo and small firm practitioners serving the broad middle class. So for me, it's always been about access to justice, not just technology. Technology is just a tool to enable people to access the legal system. So with that access to justice... Hello, listeners. This is Lee Rawls from the ABA Journal. We're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. Is your firm experiencing missed calls, empty voicemail boxes, and potential clients you'll never hear from again? Enter Answer One Virtual Receptionist. They're more than just an answering service. Answer One's available 24-7. They can even schedule appointments, respond to emails, integrate with Clio, and much more. Answer One helps make sure your clients have the experience they deserve. Give them a call at 800-ANSWER-1, that's the number one, or visit them at answerone.com forward slash podcast for a special offer. Welcome back to the ABA Journal's Legal Rebels podcast. We now return to our show, which is already in progress. So with that access to justice theme in mind, I'm curious to hear about this new project you have just announced, Introspection. What's this company going to do and how does the access to justice theme weave in? You know, it doesn't as much. This is a little bit of a deviation from some of the other things that I've done. It interests me because it promotes a concept of preventive law, which I've always been interested in. And what Introspection has is a patented deep learning technology, which uh, general counsel, mostly in larger organizations, can use. Basically, it's a patent matching technology where after the computer learns something in a specific area, like to recognize risks and employment discrimination and sexual harassment, it processes the whole email archive. That's a present email archive that the company has, and it produces a, a report which says, oh, we've detected some of these hotspots. We've detected some areas which looks like there's going to be a case. 
that's developing. So it enables the general counsel then to intervene and prevent a high conflict case from happening by identifying who the bad actors are and to try and nip a case in the bud. If you know a little bit about artificial intelligence and deep learning, you train the system around particular cases like fraud, trademark violations, or product liability, employment discrimination, and sexual harassment, which is the first major case area that we're going to unfold. And it interests me because it reduces, when managed correctly, reduces litigation dramatically. And we estimate the average cost of a case is about $400,000. We have hard data which shows that every case that a general counsel in a major company experiences is going to cost 400000 in legal fees. So I have an interest in this preventive law concept, which is another thing that I've been working on for many years. The preventive law concept was actually created by a professor at UCLA by the name of Lewis Brown. He's considered the father of preventive law. And uh, he's been a, uh, an idol of mine since early in my career. On the technology side, we don't see anything like the tool that we've developed, which enables identification of risk and elimination of risk. Now, we're still very early stage, so it will take time again for this to unfold and for it to scale. It's not going to happen overnight. We actually anticipate pushback from litigation departments and large law firms who have their bread and butter litigating for large corporations. So I think it'll take time for this, and it may not succeed. I mean, we think it will succeed, but there's always risk on these kind of early-stage ventures. So a couple of clarification questions for you about this new project. When we're talking about artificial intelligence, it's a pretty blanket term. So what specifically are we talking about? Is, is this a natural language processing system that you're creating? Is it a neural net that you're putting together? What's under the hood? Well, this particular technology is based on what we call deep learning and neural network, which recognizes patents. It's basically on what we call a patent recognition concept, where it doesn't know about content when the computer learns. For example, we tested it on Enron and on Enron's emails and pleadings from the Enron case. And we were actually able to pick up areas of risk that weren't picked up initially. But it's, in this case, it's all about what I call patent matching. When I think of artificial intelligence broadly, however, as a broad concept, I don't consider it to be hype in the sense that I would define AI as computers that think like lawyers or computer technology that does a legal task. And there's a range of different kinds of applications, some of which are relatively new, like contract analysis applications. Even document assembly can be viewed as a form of uh, intelligence because at its core, a good document assembly solution has a full logic engine, which enables the user to generate a document which can be as good as a lawyer generates. So just at a very high conceptual level, when I think of artificial intelligence in the law, I think of computers replacing or enhancing lawyers' work. And there are lots of niches. We're going to see lots of different applications of it. I mean, there's a three or four major companies that are helping lawyers analyze contracts to identify logical inconsistencies in contracts by using similar technologies, which are essential patent recognition technologies. Does that answer your question, or do you need more on that? No, that's good. There's one thing you said in there that was interesting to me that I'd like to dig a little deeper on, is that you said that when you think about AI in this space, you think of machines 
thinking how lawyers think. But is that an accurate analogy? I mean, a neural net making a decision and how they put their pattern. No, it's not an accurate analogy because computers don't actually think. They just process. That was just kind of a more flippant way of me characterizing it. What computers are really good at is processing information. And if you can convert something into information, you can have the computer actually figure out a way to solve a problem or deal with it or identify an error or identify a risk. More recently, this technology has been developing only in the last two and a half years some work that Google has done that where they open sourced some of the tools that are being used today in AI work and the work that IBM is doing with Ross. These are all new tools. So the technology, in my view, in the last couple of years has begun to reach the point where you can create these newer, more powerful commercial applications. And there will be very talented lawyer technologists that I believe are going to come up with new kinds of implementations, which will be uh, quite startling and quite innovative. And we're really at the very beginning of the beginning of this phase of the application of information technology to the delivery of legal services. We are really at a very early stage, and we've seen all this activity really in the last three years. So let me pivot a little bit, and not to call you out, but you are 77 years old. Your co-founder, Nick Brestoff, is 66. Neither of you fit the age profile of your average tech startup founder. And I was wondering what you think the benefits and challenges of your age are in this space. I think one of the benefits is just experience in terms of creating a startup and converting it into a viable company. Like, I've never missed a payroll in 35 years. You know, I have a sense of how to translate prospects into cash flow and create a sustainable company. Well, even if it's a relatively small company, it's still an art to take an idea and to convert it into a commercially viable service. I think that there's a challenge because VCs and funding organizations will always gravitate to much younger entrepreneurs who fit the profile, which means really under 30 and actually under 30 in male, because we see that as a bias in the way funding flows. But from our point of view, we have not only experience, but wide industry contacts, like a fellow that I recruited to really drive our sales and marketing, previously ran a company that serviced 120 corporate legal departments very successfully for a 20-year period. So what we uh, kind of make up for in terms of, we may have a little bit less energy, although this kind of work doesn't require physical work, it's all metal work. And there's something to be said for experience. I would say we actually have a 71-year-old president, but I'm not sure that's a good example. So you mentioned the demonstrated bias against female and also minority founders when it comes to fundraising. I was curious if you've already experienced in your career path that type of bias that you mentioned personally. Not personally. Okay. And I, there are some excellent women legal entrepreneurs who are driving growth in companies, but they're still a minority. I think of all the legal startups that I know, of about 100 that I know about, I think I only know five that are run by minorities. And so in regards to the age point, though, you personally haven't come up against that. You just know that it exists in the community that you are in. That's correct. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think from an age point of view, we actually are not seeking outside funding. So we haven't been rejected in that sense. Got it. You know, so we're dealing with anecdotal data, but we know if you do any kind of research, if you take a look at the criteria to get VC funded, for example, 
we know what that criteria is. You have to live usually 20 miles from within where that VC is located. Youth is clearly optimized. You need to have a team. I mean, it's not rocket science. If you want to get funded by a VC, you have to fit a certain pattern. And that pattern is, is fairly clear. I mean, if you run the demographics, you'll see all those demographics fit into a pattern. So I think that's just a reality. So this has been a, a great conversation. And as you mentioned, you're in the early stages of introspection. For those interested on the path you're going on, where should people find you and keep an eye out for what you've got going on? We're, we're starting to run pilot projects in general counsel's office, which will then uh, begin to uh, talk about those results. And uh, we have not a strategy, but part of the technology is to teach the computer, teach the system about the particular cases that a corporation has, their particular cases. So it self-learns generally, but it also self-learns in particular. So if we were dealing with Walmart, I'm using that as an example, thousands of employees, we would take their own data and use it to teach the system to recognize employment discrimination or sexual harassment, let's say, within that particular company. So as these particular pilots begin to show some results, we'll get those results out because that will generate traction. I was curious on how people could learn more. Do you have a website up yet or a blog that you're hosting that people can follow up? And what is that? Yeah, the website is introspection.com, I-N-T-R-A-S-P-E-X-I-O-N. We have an extensive blog which explains that technology. Uh, companies can actually sign up directly if they're of a certain size for one of our pilot projects. So we're fully operational in that sense. And there's a deep analysis of the technology and the way it works. And we have a patent portfolio. So there's a description of each of the nine patents that we have. We have a patent portfolio that protects this technology and we think uh, will be a major asset. All of this is on the website. It's introspection.com, I-N-T-R-A-S-P-E-X-I-O-N.com. Great, and so for our listeners, they can check that out to learn more. Well, Richard, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. And uh, for the ABA Legal Rebels podcast, Jason Tesche signing off. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalRebels.com, LegalTalkNetwork.com, subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find both the ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or download the free apps from ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.